so we're in the middle of this series. I got tools, watch it. Called 12 Words. And uh, before we get to today's word, um, I wanna tell you about the latest show that my wife and I are in, intrigued by on Netflix. Uh, it's called Canada's Worst Handyman. Um, I take responsibility for finding this show. I, um, my Netflix queue is like 200 shows long. It's quite shameful. Um, but I found this and we started watching it and it literally is just the, they, they had people nominate the worst handymen in Canada and handy women, people. And they, this guy just takes them into this house and they have rehab projects. And these people just are astoundingly bad. Now they're Canadian, so they're very politely astoundingly bad, but they're bad. And in particular, there's this guy named Joe. Uh, this is Joe. And uh, he is probably the most inept person I have ever seen for a grown man. So the big thing that if you ever watch the show, the big thing, Joe's big thing is that this is his tool for every project that he has to do. And so Joe just, uh, if, if there's a, a, some piece of metal that needs to go into a board to hold two boards together, here comes the hammer. Even when the thing that's supposed to go into the board to hold them together is a screw, Joe don't do the driver. Joe just takes the hammer, puts the screw there, and starts wailing on the screw until it goes into the board. Just hits and hits and hits. He has no idea what the tool is for. No clue. And all kinds of funny disasters ensue where he's trying to make something, but he doesn't know how to use the tool that's been given to him. And so it never comes out right. This really spoke to me this week because what we're talking about in this series is the tool of religion and faith and spirituality. And I believe from, from the core of my heart that faith and spirituality and even the word religion, which is kind of a weird word in our culture, that is a tool. It's a tool for us to use to accomplish something. But if you've grown up around any type of, of faith environment or, or you just uh, have heard the conversations, you're aware that this tool of faith and spirituality can be used and misused pretty significantly. Um, so I was thinking this week about what, what are some ways that people take this tool and have no idea what, I, what it's really used for and how do they wield that on people? And maybe you have some experience with this. Maybe you've seen faith and spirituality used as a means to tell you who the good people in the world are and the bad people in the world are. Anybody ever been a part of a community that's like, look, here's the good folks, and we like them. Here's the bad folks, and there's a boundary marker. And they use this tool of faith and spirituality to just say, look, we're gonna, we're gonna kind of point out who the good folks and who the bad folks in the world. Stay away from the bad folks. Have you ever been a part or heard a part of a community that uses the tool of faith and spirituality to cultivate attitudes of shame? To say, this tool 
we're going to use so that you feel really bad about yourself, existentially bad about yourself. Anybody ever heard of a faith community that's done that? Have you ever seen or heard of a, a faith community that can use the tool of religion to control people? Here are the decisions that you should make. Here's who, again, with the good people and the bad people, here's who you can have coffee with. Here's you, who you can have dinner with. Here's you, who you can have to your home. So like, you can take this tool of faith and spirituality and you can use it to accomplish a bunch of different purposes, but you're misusing the tool from my point of view. Let me push on this just a little while longer because when you start using the tool, it leads you to certain conclusions and certain decisions. So, for instance, if, if you believe that the tool of religion is to cultivate shame in people, then you're going to hear constantly how bad you are at the core of your being. You're going to get that. When, when things get squeezed, you're going to say, well... It's because you're all a bunch of hooligans. That's, like, that's not really the religious word that we use. But if you believe that religion is a tool of control, oh, man, you're going to create those decisions. You're going to say, again, you don't have dinner with this person. You don't have dinner with that person. Here's exactly how you conduct your life. Let us lay it out for you. And, you know, God help you if you cross that rule and that boundary. But I don't think that's what religion is for. I don't think that's what faith is for. I don't think that's what spirituality is for. And I think that Jesus kind of helps me out here because we've, we've come across this verse multiple times during this series. Why did Jesus come? John 10, 10. He came so that we can have what? Yeah. And what kind of life? Abundant life full life, rich life, satisfying life, all those different translations of the Bible. Jesus says in my translation, the tool of faith and spirituality is to give you a rich and satisfying life. That's what it does. If you try to use it to cultivate shame and control, guess what? You're misusing the tool. And I love what this kind of brings up for me because uh, if you're using religion badly, then when you cross those borderlines, you know, the hammer, haha, will fall. Why won't you submit to our control? Why don't you have the appropriate amount of shame? But when you start for the premise of like, you know what faith and spirituality is for? It's so that you can have a rich and satisfying life. You know what that does for me and my conversations? It does this. Is there anywhere in your life that, you're, that you would say it's not rich and satisfying or full? Because guess what? Jesus wants to help you with that. Faith wants to help you with that. Is there any area of your life that you're like, man, it's stale right there. Guess what? That's what the tool's for. Rich, satisfying, abundant life. Where's your life feel stale? Jesus wants to help with that. So that's what we've been doing. And we've been looking at these concepts and these moves that are, that are uh, represented on these posters around the space of different ideas and different um, behaviors that we get to adapt 
to give us a rich and satisfying life. Not to control you, not to make you feel shame, to give you a rich and satisfying life. And today, we're going to go uh, sort of back into the, the conversation that Lori started. With. By the way, if you guys were here last week, didn't like Lori like knock it out of the park? Yeah, she's cool. Um, and, and here's the deal. You know what's really cool about it? It's like I mentioned earlier, I've had a couple forgiveness conversations this week. And I, and I know other folks who have too. Where they're just like, you know what? Someone came up to me and they said, I got to tell you this thing. That's good. That makes my heart feel full. So we're going to talk about the sort of a, another aspect of that. We're also going to do this thing called communion today. The Lord's table, you might know it as, the Eucharist. But it's essentially a remembrance of Jesus' sacrifice, and it is something he commands the church to do. And what I want to do is start off with a verse uh, in a letter that was written to a church in Corinth by a guy named Paul. And in 1 Corinthians 11, he is giving the church instructions on communion. And we read these almost every time we, we go to the table. But this is what Paul says. He says, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then he draws a couple conclusions. So then, whoever drinks the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Oh, that, that's not too comfortable, right? Not my, anybody else? Like, ah, that doesn't sound like a good thing. Everyone ought to, what's it say? Examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, here it comes again, eh, eat and drink judgment on themselves. So Paul says, look, this is not a snack. <laughs> this is not Sunday brunch. Paul is saying, this bread, this cup means something. And then he says, look, before you come to it, Examine yourself. And that's what we're going to do right now today. We're going to go to the table at the end of the gathering. But before we do that, we're going to examine ourselves. He says, examine yourself. Don't come to this table without what? Discerning the body of Christ. And that's what we're going to do. And we're going to start off by taking a look at this thing. Anybody know what this is? It's a yoke, not an egg yolk. Found that out this week. No, I'm kidding. It's a yoke. So, you know, for those of us who are city folks, you put this over like the neck of a, of a, of a cow or an ox or a horse to like, you know, get them to plow and stuff, right? It does work. It helps the, the animal work, right? This thing on, dealer, anybody? Surely you people know more about a yoke than I do. So the yoke... In the Jewish world, and the yoke in the ancient world was 
very uh, rightly understand, understood as a symbol of, of servitude and submission. It, it wasn't, it, you know, when they saw the animals yoked this way, in the ancient world, it was easy to kind of say, oh, there's, there are other kinds of yokes that we can have. And so in the Jewish world, a yoke was, was a symbolic way to talk about your commitments to different things. There is a, a collection of writings from the uh, Jewish world, the ancient world, written about 300 AD called the Mishnah. And the Mishnah was written down oral traditions that were existed for years and years and years and years and years. Around 300, they wrote them down and collected them. So in the Mishnah, for instance, they say, uh, you, if you're going to be a, a person of God, a, a good Jew, you yoke yourself to the Torah which is the law with the instruction of God, the first five books of the Bible. You put yourself in servitude to God's instruction. That doesn't sound too odd to most of us, right? We would say, yes, amen. Yoke yourself to God. Well, there, there's another image in, in the Torah, and I want to show you a picture because this is a single animal yoke. This is another yoke that, that is multiple animals, right? And they use this imagery in the Mishnah to say, don't just yoke yourself to the Torah. Yoke yourself to another person so that you can share their burden. They use this imagery over and over again. Take the yoke on you of the Torah. Take the yoke on you of sharing the burden of somebody else that needs it. And these two animals can do much more work and they can, they can be in alignment this way. Well, um, Around Jesus' time and shortly thereafter, yoke began to be used in another form. So they, they had these teachers called rabbis. And Jesus really functioned a lot like a rabbi. Well, at some point, they started talking about you never just yoked yourself. You didn't always yoke yourself just to Torah and just to each other. Sometimes you yoked yourself to a rabbi. And so it was talked about like, take on the yoke of your teacher. And what that meant is that your rabbi or the rabbi had a way of interpreting scripture, had a way of living out life with God. And the traditions would say, yoke yourself to that rabbi. And you see Jesus adapting this language in Matthew 11 when he says, take, maybe you've heard this, take my yoke on you. And when he does that, he is just, really entering and using the words of his culture to say, take on my way of life. Take on the way I read scriptures. Submit to it. Become its servant. Well, here's what's interesting about that. Uh, Jesus' yoke just happens to involve radical forgiveness. Radical Forgiveness, not just uh, of us from God, but between each other. So when Jesus says, look, take my yoke upon you, submit to it, live it out. Well, what he's saying is like, take on this yoke of radical forgiveness. So in Matthew 6, for example, he talks about this in the context of prayer. He says, look, if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. 
But then he goes on. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. What? Like this is a high bar, Jesus. The language, if you do it, God will forgive you. But if you don't, God will not. What's going on there? I think what we're going to see is that Jesus is not necessarily uh, setting this up in a way that we might understand with our modern mindset. That there's not literally God waiting to see, are they going to forgive? I think there's something deeper going on there that Jesus wants to see. We'll get to that in a second. So that's Matthew 6. In Matthew 5, Jesus, for his time and his culture, makes just an astounding of a statement. He says, therefore, he's talking about anger and murder. And he says, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Them come and offer your gift. Now, when Jesus says offering your gift at the altar, remember, he's not talking about like the local church. In the Jewish world, there's only one place with an altar. Anybody know where it is? It's in Jerusalem. There's only one altar in this context. There's only one place to offer sacrifice. That, that document that I referred to earlier, the Mishnah, this is what they say about the importance of offering sacrifices. A guy named Simeon the Just said these things. By three things is the world sustained. By Torah, God's instructions. By temple service, which is the offering of sacrifices. And by the deeds of loving kindness. So this guy says, look, the whole world revolves around reading God's word, offering sacrifices at the temple, and doing good things for other people. And Jesus comes along and says, ah, wait a minute. There's something that takes the place or supersedes the giving of the sacrifice. Jesus says, look, if you're about to give your sacrifice, that corner, that whole thing the world revolves around, and you realize, oh, 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 I'm not right with somebody. What's he say? Leave it and go make it right. You know what makes it even more astounding? Jesus preaches these words in a place called Galilee. This is home. When he preaches these words, go leave your temple at the altar, the altar in Jerusalem is about 80 miles away from Galilee. Thank heaven for Google Maps. I love this. One day, an 11-hour walk. How important do you think Jesus says forgiving each other is? He says if you've done the journey, you've walked the 80 miles to the temple, to the altar, you've got your sacrifice, and right then you're like, oh, oh, wait a minute, I ran into Bob's mailbox the other day. Take your hand off it. And you start to walk back to Galilee. Make it right. Now, in our context, just for fun, this is what it would look like for us. Walk to Port St. Joe. You get to Port St. Joe, things ain't right. 
start walking back to Tallahassee and make it right. How high does Jesus hold forgiveness? Pretty darn high. So this phrase popped up in my head this week, and and it's simply this, that like, again, Jesus, his yoke involves radical forgiveness. But then this question started popping up in my head. What does Jesus know that I don't? Some questions are rhetorical questions. All right, I get it. I wonder if, well, uh, duh, about I was just actually thinking if Jesus could play guitar like I could. And I was like, I don't know, I wonder if he could or not. I don't know. Um, what does Jesus know about life that I don't? Because let's face it, I don't know if you've ever done any of this forgiveness thing. I'm going to be really honest and be a little bit vulnerable. It's not easy. And it's not fun. Have you ever had to sit down with somebody and admit you were wrong? I mean, it changes the atmosphere for the better. But are those your favorite conversations? Do you wake up in the morning and be, I cannot wait till I get to like just admit. But Jesus says, you got to do it. It's more important than the temple. What does he know about life that I forget? Well, I want to kind of just like round this thing up with a couple thoughts. Takes us back to our friend uh, Joe, the handyman from Canada. And uh, no, he's not going to come back up on the screen. Everyone's like, look at this. So Joe and his hammer, you know, and he uses the tool, misuses the tool. He's like, this thing is going to solve everything. I love that phrase. Look, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. If you get your tool, the nature of your tool wrong, you're going to just misuse it all over the place, right? If we go back to those misuses of religion, and there might be more, you know, if your tool of religion, again, if the tool of religion is to control people, how do you measure its success? Well, does everybody dress like us? Do they do every single thing we tell them to do? Do they just behave exactly the way we tell them all the time? If if that's your view of religion, that's your measure of success. If your tool of religion is how bad can we make people feel about themselves? How much shame can we cultivate inside them? Well, then if you get shameful, uh, shameful people, then you're hitting it right on the head. That's your measure of success. If your measure of success is is that religion tells us who the good people are and who the bad people are, then I guess your measure of success is that only people who look like us show up on Sunday. And the ones who don't look like us or don't dress like us or don't act like us, we subtly nudge them or sometimes not so subtly nudge them out the door and let them know that they're not welcome. There's other ways that you can measure the success of the tool of faith or the tool of a church. And we've seen some of these. Everybody ever heard, seen a church that maybe measures its success by how much money it has in the bank? Maybe that's how you measure success of your tool. Uh, anybody ever been around a church that measures its success by it has the loudest voice on political issues or social issues? It's not a bad thing, 
I don't know if it's the way to measure the success of a church, but some churches do that. Have you ever been around a church that measures its success by, hey, we got all the cool people. The coolest people come to our church. There is no air, no oxygen between the, 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 the fabric of our musicians' skinny jeans and their flesh. They're so tight. We are so cool. We got beards and hats for days. You ever been around a church or seen a church that like, look, a lot of churches measure their success by their size. Some churches would say, you measure our success by how inclusive we are. All these things are not necessarily bad things. But I want to suggest to you that they're not the way Jesus says to measure the success of your community. And thankfully, I got Jesus to back me up on it. Because in John 13... Jesus says, I'm going to give you a new command. Love each other. Love each other as I have loved you. That's the way you love each other. And then he tells you what the measure of success is. By this thing, everyone will know you're my disciples. If you, what? Love each other. If you love each other, that's how the world will know. Not if you're the loudest, the biggest, the richest. If your community is made up of people who are like saying, I'm going to reconcile with you no matter what. Because God loves you and God loves me. And let's sit down and get right with each other. That's the way the world's going to know. Jesus said it. Let me show you a picture of uh, uh, something called the Dead Sea. Anybody heard of the Dead Sea? Dead Sea uh, is just a little bit, you see, east of Jerusalem. We've got some pictures of it. It's the lowest place on earth. And uh, the water in the Dead Sea is so, I think the word is salinated, it's so salty that nothing can live in the Dead Sea. Microorganisms can. No fish no, uh, no flowers, nothing. It's so thick that you can float in it. You can just sit in it and it'll sustain you. So this guy, like that's what people do. They take pictures like this, reading the paper in the Dead Sea. Do you know how the Dead Sea got to be so dead? Where's my Jesus person? Ah, okay, all right. So, so the Dead Sea got to be so dead because of really um, one main reason. You see, water flows into the Dead Sea from runoff, from rivers, but it has no outlet. It has no outlet. The water comes in full of minerals. It can't get out. The, the, the minerals get trapped in there. The sun evaporates some of the water, and it gets thicker, and it's thicker, and it just dies. And I think the Dead Sea says something about why Jesus says you got to forgive each other. Because we have a tendency to think that life works with, if I can just right, get right with God, the water will come into my soul and I'll be okay. But the Dead Sea tells me and Jesus tells me, you're not meant to be a pond. You're not meant to not have any outlets. 
this love that comes down or comes into you from God, it better have a way to come out. Or you just end up like the Dead Sea. You think that you're growing and you think that this is like, oh, this is the way this works. God loves me. I can't stand that person. And God's like, no, you're dying. You're dying because you're meant to be a conduit. You're not meant to be a sea with no outlet. So when you go back to that statement in Matthew 6 again, Jesus says, look, if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. And then if you don't, God won't. What I read that is Jesus saying, like, this is not a chicken or the egg thing. Like, you have to get both of these things right. They're, they're intrinsically and inseparably linked. Forgive other people and God forgives you. If you just let it come in, you're going to dry up your soul and you'll never even realize it. Release that stuff. Forgive other people. So, Here's what I would say. This is what Jesus knows that I don't or that I forget. Jesus knows that uh, forgiveness, when it is given and received, is an effective and beautiful tool that builds his house, that tells the world there are disciples. And they show people what God is like. And what life is really like. That's what Jesus knows. That's why he says do it. Because if you don't do it, your soul's going to dry up and you won't even know it. You think you're getting it all right. Let me take you back to 1 Corinthians. Where Paul is giving those instructions to the church. And I actually want to just uh, go back to those verses. Uh, verse 27. Paul, you know, says a thing. Well, actually, we will read the whole thing. Again, Paul says, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread, Paul says, and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, here we go again, will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Ouch. Everyone ought to examine yourself. Before you eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. So when I grew up, and you can, uh, when, when I grew up, or maybe you've heard this, when Paul writes those words and he says, examine yourself and don't do this without thinking about the body of Christ. I think about that bread and I think about Jesus' body broken on the cross and I'm like, oh man, my forgiveness, my freedom cost a lot. Yeah, God split the sea so I could walk right through it. 
And I'm a child of God. But it cost Jesus Christ his life. But Paul, the guy who wrote these words, is pretty smart. Because the whole of the letter of 1 Corinthians, Paul actually is talking to that church about getting community right. That church is a mess. They're having lawsuits. They're bickering. They have rich folks who are taking advantage of poor folks. And Paul gets to this. And he says, don't take this meal without discerning the body. And you know, actually, funny enough, you know how Paul refers to the church in, in 1 Corinthians and in other letters? What does he call the church? Anybody? The body of Christ. So maybe what Paul's doing here, he's like, hey, don't come to this table and just think that your forgiveness is like this. Paul says, you think about the body, which means think about your relationships. Come to this table knowing that our spiritual life is not a Dead Sea life. The love comes in, the love comes out. Paul says, don't just do this. Do this thing. Now, here's the good news. Look, if you had a forgiveness conversation this week, if you gave it, if you received it, guess what you did? You built Jesus' house. You worked on that proclaiming to the world. Look, we love each other. We're not always perfect, but we love each other. We get that done. That is a beautiful thing. Know how important it is. Important it's not added on to our spirituality. In a way, it is our spirituality. If you gave forgiveness, if you received forgiveness from somebody, you built Jesus' kingdom on earth, and I thank you for it. Amen. But we're going to go to the table now. And I'm going to challenge you in two ways. To discern the body. Yeah, think about Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, but I also want to challenge you, think about your relationships. Now, Lori walked us through forgiveness. Band, you guys can come on out. The servers are going to come up. They'll, they'll be around here to, to receive, uh, so you can receive communion. Lori walked us through forgiveness. I don't want to necessarily go back to that. But we're going to have a couple questions that are just going to come up here. As you come to the table, who do you need to be grateful for? God put you in a community. Is there somebody that just puts wind in your sails? That has offered you forgiveness? That walks alongside you, encourages you? Man, I'd ask you to just say a prayer of gratitude to God before you come up for this. Discern the body. Think about your relationships. Maybe that person's in the room and you just walk over to them as you're coming up and you just say, thank you. Thank you. And the other question, is there anybody you're still struggling with? A relationship that's just not right. I want to be really, really clear here. There's folks in this community that are deeply, deeply, deeply 
wounded. And, and you know the name of the person, but God knows and you know and probably your close friends, you know, I'm not there yet. It's too deep. It's too painful. Listen, God knows. I think all God would ask is to say, in your heart, can you be willing? Maybe not now, but can you say, God, I'm willing. I can't do it now. God is too big. It's too, but God, I'm willing. Can you claim that for yourself? Examine the body, discern the body. There's a relationship I need to get right. And then maybe, can you offer up a prayer for that person, even though you're not ready to go all the way to forgiveness yet? And not like the prayer, God, make a rock fall on their heads. Maybe a prayer of like, God, I don't even know what it means, but can you, God, can you have this person in the palm of your hand? And when I'm willing, God, I'll go. That's all I can say right now. So at E3, we do this thing called intinction. So there's gonna be some bread and a cup. You're gonna take the bread. If, if this table represents an opportunity for you to remember the cost of your freedom and the beauty of God's body, come. Take the bread, dip it in the cup. Don't take the cup and drain it. It's awkward for everybody. But examine, examine the body. Let's pray.